Examine where you are in the spectrum between hacker and perfectionist, and then try to be more like the other guy. There have been times when I've had this grandiose idea for how to design a thing, and Adam is like, or we could put an if statement here, and just three lines later, the problem solved. That's obviously the right idea, right? Three lines to solve the problem, great. On the other hand, Adam will sometimes be like, I'm going to use exactly the source that I have, the system that I have, and I'm just going to plow through it. And I'm like, if you just redesign this class to be like an interface, and then we can use polymorphism here, it'll be like so much easier for you to do. And actually, it's less code in the long run. So I think both sides can have their winning moment. I'm Andrew Columbi, co-founder and CTO at Tonic AI. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Took six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what it to took do took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. I was proud of her team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, pain. we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. Not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labpart, and today how Andrew Columbi created a platform that creates real fake data, mimicking your production environment. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Andrew Columbia is a tech guy from way back. At 12 years old, he wanted to play a computer game but lacked the RAM to load it. After digging into the internal configuration to delay the load of peripherals, he was hooked on computers and eventually coding. Outside of tech, he's picking back up learning the piano and really enjoys biking. He mentioned he just got a new gravel bike, which is a street bike with front suspension. In the past, Andrew frequently worked with data that was private, with other users not having access. So he had to create fake data for multiple different projects. When he tried to do this, it took him much longer than anticipated, and he found out it was incredibly valuable for multiple uses, stress testing and demos to name a few. This was key to eventually building a real tool for this and starting a new adventure. This is the creation story of Tonic. We're a fake data company. We make fake data. And we make it for test and development purposes. You've got this fun new app that you're making and you need to test it, but you don't want to test it with real user data because that could be sensitive or you might not have the rights to that data or there might be legislation. And so what we will do is our software will analyze your database and create another database based on that database for the purposes of testing. 
and software development. And of course, people use it for other things too. Sales demos is like a similar situation, right? Like your best demo would be to demo with real data, but you can't sometimes. So you can use Tonic for that instead. It got started because we were doing it. Like we needed the test data as well in our previous jobs. I worked at Palantir for about nine and a half years. And while I was there, we frequently worked with data that was sensitive and we couldn't share with the rest of the Palantir organization. We couldn't share with our colleagues, right? Funny, like we have four co-founders, but two of them are on the GTM side, Ian and Carl. And I, I knew both of them from Palantir. And independently, I worked with Ian. And then independently, I worked with Carl on creating fake data for different projects. So like with Ian, it was a media company we were working with. And with Carl, it was like a banking company. So very different projects, but both of them needed fake data. And so I said, cool, fake data, that's not that hard. Random is pretty well understood, and I can use random to make fake data. I started on this process of trying to create fake data for, let's say, the banking project. I think that was the first one. And I said, okay, I'm going to get this done in a week. A week goes by and I'm like nowhere even near finishing the project. I was digging deep into like stats textbooks and like trying to understand Poisson distributions and modifying how they work to be more adaptive, all these things. And four weeks later, I had a pretty rad fake data set. It took a lot more work than I expected, but was really good. Other people started knocking on my door being like, hey, that, that fake data set, can we use it for like our demo that we're going to give to this next client? Or can we use it for our scale testing? And so there was like a twin thing there. It was like, one, it was really hard to do. And two, it was more valuable than I thought it was. That's a really key combination of things. Like it's harder than you think and more valuable than you think. You can sell that because people can't do it because it's hard and they're willing to buy it because it's valuable. It was like eight years go by or something like seven years go by. Ian and Carl go to different companies. I stay at Palantir. They work on different things. They leave their companies and they're like t trying out different ideas. And then they're like, hey, let's, let's talk to Andrew about that fake data idea a little bit. And I'm like, that is a great idea. We really should do a startup on that. And at the time I was making a video game because I had quit Palantir. And I'm like bad at making video games. I like, I want to make a video game, but I'm bad at it. <laughs> and I'm actually really good at data stuff. So I should probably put down my video game and try to make this data thing work with Ian and Carl. Let's dive into the MVP. And I'm curious where, where are you going to take it? If it's that original set or if it's you maybe take it a little further when you decided to, you know, do this thing with your co-founders. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? I am like really bad with time. So history is like lost to me. <laughs> it just happened in the past or it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. But I'll try my best to recreate like what it was in like the early years. Our first customer, the first paying customer, we charged them $50 a month. That's not much money. We had humble beginnings and I think we knew what we wanted to build. We started to put it together and we tried to iterate with our early customers as best as we could. And I think the real break point was when we landed eBay. When we landed eBay, we had already seen that our product fit what people needed, but eBay really helped us elucidate like the missing pieces that would make it enterprise ready. The MVP, like the minimal viable product, was what we shipped to eBay initially and what we came out with on the other side of it 
that was the product that we were able to sell more broadly. Once you get different conversations under the under your belt, it, it starts to make it easier. So with that, you, you've got eBay. You're building, you know, something that you you feel people people want, right? You've got to make certain decisions and trade offs there, either either in the fifty dollar version or in the in the the work you did with eBay. Decisions and trade offs to essentially around you know approach tech debt adding features, removing features, all those things. Tell me about some of those you had to work through and how you coped with those decisions. I always try to lean on trade-off toward the customer. And what do I mean by that? Let's say you're designing some software system, right? And it's like, okay, I can put it together in this way or I can put it together in this other way. And what is the winner of those two ways, right? You might have way number one, which feels like a really great design for future developers. And then way number two, which will give you the feature much faster, but might not be the best design in terms of the software. When you're weighing those two things, it's like in way number one, I'm the winner because I have a better software that I can work with in the future for making expansions. Maybe our future customers are winners because they get features delivered more quickly because we have less tech debt or whatever. And way number two, the customer that I see right in front of me is the winner. And you always want to make sure you're aware of that trade-off of like who is the winner in any given trade-off that you're making. And like the worst winner, the wor- absolute worst possible winner is your pride. If your pride is the winner, then like you have made a bad decision because your pride does not really matter at all. Whenever people are making these kinds of decisions in, today at Tonic, I, I, I remind them like, hey, think about who the winner is and make sure you're not arguing for this because you will become the winner. You really want to make sure that it's like your customers are the winner, et cetera. In terms of like specific trade-offs that we may have made, Tonic, one of the things that we do when we start doing our processing of your database is we like analyze the schema of the database and spit out a copy of your database's schema in another database so that we can start pushing data in there. Step one, get the schema right. The way that we have done that schema fairing process from the source database to the destination database has matured and evolved over years and the years. But like the very first version was like, just scrape the schema, use some regexes and cross your fingers. That's clearly like a bad design, but it got the job done right away. And you won't even know what the problems with that design are until you have more reps. We went with that design initially, and it definitely had a bug. Like, we definitely had, like, P0, critical bug. This customer had a failure because we totally mangled their schema because, guess what? Regexes don't parse SQL very well. And we had that bug, and we knew it would come. And then we made it better from there. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble, super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. 
That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash code story. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. From that point, you've got the product. Maybe this is post eBay, right? How have you progressed the product and matured it from that point? And what I'm what I'm curious about is how you built your roadmap, how you went about deciding, okay, now this thing is the next most important thing to build or to address with Tonic AI. There are two buckets of things that we build next. The first bucket will be like immediate customer requests and prospective customer requests from sales. And then the other bucket of things is looking at the patterns of usage that we see that our customers are doing. From that pattern, discerning what other features we could build to make their workflows easier. And so we actually, at one point, we even split the development team along those lines in a way. It wasn't like explicitly that way, but we even had a team called the Workflows team. It's changed names since then, but the Workflows team was like designed for making customer workflow better. And so we we split our resources that way. And, and, and in that way, we were able to focus a little bit on each and not be negligent on either. The customer one, like the one that just helps with customers' immediate needs, that's maybe less interesting in terms of like, how do you prioritize? But the other one is interesting and it follows like a familiar playbook, right? Like interview your customers, make sure you understand why it is they're using your product and make sure you understand why did they use this product and when they're pissed off at it, what is it that makes them keep going anyway? And trying to find those moments of anger and then assuage them just to look a little. And so then with that kind of allotted portion of the development team, we prioritized what work could be done to help them and came up with some really cool features and stuff that I think really helps our customers take advantage of the core tonic offering. So I'm curious about how you went about building your team and, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? So we're like a remote principal, I don't know what, a remote primary company. We have like a couple of hubs just because people live in cities. So we end up hiring more in those areas. We have like an area in like Atlanta, an area in San Francisco Bay Area and in New York. Like we have people in Orlando, we have people in Austin, Texas, and Portland, everywhere. When you are a remote first company, there's nowhere to hide. Your work output is just, it's in GitHub and there's nowhere to hide in terms of their productivity. I, I, I feel like in not remote, it's easier to get lots of help from your neighbor or have 
conversations and makes it appear like you're more productive than you might be. Understanding exactly where every engineer was at and where people needed help or where the fit wasn't good became really apparent, just like really starkly apparent. And our hiring approach, honestly, has been to try to give people a shot and see how they fit because interviewing is such a crapshoot. It's been an interesting experience, to be honest. Like, it has its ups and downs. Like, that was the idea, right? Let's give people a shot. We definitely interview people, but compared to what we did at Palantir in terms of interview process, it was much shorter. And we have a good feeling, let's try it. And that's been an interesting learning experience because I don't think it's like 100% good because now you're filtering people after they joined the company, which they can take a toll on like a team's cohesiveness, even like the company's cohesiveness a little. In practice, it can be a bit disruptive to have a lot of churn if you're trying out more candidates than you might otherwise try out. I guess to answer your question, it's a work in progress. I don't know what the better approach is still because interviews are still a crapshoot. So if you know the right answer, if you're listening and you know the right answer, email me. This episode was automatically optimized by CAST. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai/codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vercel edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite in a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for Code Story listeners. Head over to terso.tech/codestory and get started today. That's t u r s o.tech/codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. Well, let's flip to scalability then. This will be interesting given, you know, the product that you've built, it's data related and, I, and I'm curious where this fit in for you. Was it built to scale efficiently from day one or with scale in mind as far as like architecture or anything? Or have you been fighting this as you grow and gain traction in any sort of capacity? No, it was not designed with scale from day one. There are two technical co-founders, me and Adam. And that's really not the way either of us like to operate of think about all the problems and try to address all of them up front. I'm more so than Adam, but no one cares if it's scalable if they don't use it. Is a software that falls in the wood scalable if no one's there to use it? I don't know. <laughs> Who cares if it's scalable? I, I, I certainly don't care if it doesn't sell. We just went for make it work, make it do the thing. 
and now we've started in certain areas to focus on that. It's hard also because we work with your source database and uh, your source database, I know, maybe it's Postgres, maybe it's MySQL, maybe it's SQL Server, maybe it's Snowflake. So much of our performance, at, like the scalability of our platform depends on your source database. So if you put us on like, I don't know what the Amazon AWS code name is, like T3 mini or something like that, the, the really small AWS instance, we're going to be dog slow no matter how you provision or how we architect Tonic. Generally speaking, databases like Postgres and MySQL and SQL Server aren't really designed with massive parallel scalability in mind up front. So we're swimming upstream with those databases no matter what we do. Databases like Snowflake, or uh, we work with Databricks too, for example, those are obviously designed with scalability in mind up front. And so for those, we have like slightly different architectures. Actually, with Databricks, we have a very different architecture that takes advantage of that scalability and lets us be more scalable. It's a mixed bag a little bit in terms of like where we are today in terms of scalability. But part of that is like we're a little hamstrung by the database technology you connect us to. So... As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? The first thing I have to say is like the team and people we work with. It's so rewarding to work with these people. When I was at Palantir, Palantir has since changed this, but when I was at Palantir, they never had salespeople. They just, like, there was no sales team. There were people that sold product, but they all had CS degrees. They weren't paid on commission. They didn't look like a real sales team. Working with a sales team for the first time at Tonic was like, it's such an eye-opening thing and, and really cool and fun. I, I really enjoy working with a real sales team. So that's been really cool. In terms of like technical things, part of our offering is this technology called subsetting, which shrinks a database. So if you have your 10 terabyte production database, but you want your test database to be one gigabyte, how can you do that? We have a technology for that called subsetting. It was something that we built very early on, me and Adam and the early engineers. Johnny was one of them. And it's like really cool tech. We have a patent on it. And I'm not like a huge algorithms nerd, but it was really satisfying to crack that nut and make it work. And now it's something that I think around 40% of our customers use. It definitely makes us some money. I think it's a real differentiator for Tonic too. Okay, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. When you're making the roadmap, there's always like a trade-off between various things you can make. And I think one of the things that we perhaps overdid a bit is on refinement of what we already had instead of growth of the capabilities overall. So what that meant was our... CS team, which is a fantastic team, and they're responsible for upsells. Renewal time comes in, and we just didn't have anything for them to upsell, really. They're like, the features are all the same, they're just all a lot better. And that was difficult for our NDR, our net dollar retention. This is like the measurement of how good you are at expanding uh, your business. Customers are renewing, but they were just like not upselling. And if you look at like a really top tier business, something like Snowflake, I don't know exactly what their NDR is, but it's like 150%, meaning like every one of their customers like expands by 50%. Not everyone, but like on average, customers expand by 50% year over year. And that's where we want to be. But if you don't have anything to upsell them, they're just going to renew at the same rate. 
So that, I think, was a pretty big mistake that we made. And it's a difficult one, too, because me personally, I'm, I'm a perfectionist. So my, my desire is to make the thing the best possible thing. But like the real thing you need to do is give them more because otherwise you won't be able to upsell. Okay, so this will be fun. Andrew, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? So Tonic right now today is really great, I think, at your like staging UAT environment. You want to test with data that looks like production, but it's more like you're ad hoc testing. You're like, how does it feel to use this product with this data? On the other hand, the other kind of testing that we don't see as much Tonic being used for is more on the automated side of testing. So your CICD pipeline, you want data that every time you know exactly what the data is going to be, maybe you want like specific data in a certain way to test a certain thing, like you're a retail shop, you want to test what happens when a customer has more than 10 things in their shopping cart, because maybe the page has like a pagination in the shopping cart or something like that, whatever it might be. But you need this very specific scenario, customer with 10 things in their cart. And Tonic isn't used for that as much today. We have some customers using it for that, but not as much. And that's an area I really want Tonic to get into because everyone's moving towards CICD and automated testing is a huge part of where folks are going today. I really want to get Tonic more into CICD to help expand NDR and, and give us more upsells and get us like even stickier in the system. Because like, if you're part of some company's CICD, it's like really hard to be ousted because you're you're so stuck in there. The other areas that I think will be really interesting for Tonic, expanding to uh, unstructured data is an area that we're looking at pretty heavily right now. So that would be things like a, a note, like a PDF file with notes in it, or even like notes in a database. Being able to like really surgically work with that data, the easiest way is to just clobber the data altogether because it's like a doctor's note. It's really sensitive, so you don't want to leave anything around. But we can be more surgical if we can identify exactly where the sensitive data is in there. And in I don't know if you noticed, but like the last six months or a year, there's been this massive explosion in natural language processing capabilities. And so we're taking advantage of that and trying to really expand our capabilities in that area and provide tooling to help with this sensitive data in, in language problem. And also tooling to help work with these new LLMs, these large language models that are popping up because companies want to work with them, but they're afraid of exposing sensitive data to them. And guess what? Tonic is really great at working with sensitive data. We've got like software for it. We got the tech for it. We've got the branding for it. So we're excited to, to expand into that as well. So it's like two edges of the LLM sword. It's like helping companies work with LLMs and also us taking advantage of LLMs to further refine our offering and product. Andrew, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. Maybe this is cheesy, but I think my co-founder, Adam, we work like in very different ways, but I really appreciate the way he works. Like I said earlier, I'm like more of the perfectionist. He's more of the let's just get it done. And it's great to have that tension in a founding team because neither of us are right. And one thing I'll always tell someone, especially junior coders that are just going into the, they're just coming into the world and they think they know it all. I always tell them like, 
examine where you are in the spectrum between hacker and perfectionist, and then try to be more like the other guy. Because if you're the hacker, being more of the perfectionist or the more of the, the ivory tower coder or whatever you want to call it can help you. And if you're the ivory tower coder, being more of a hacker can help you. Because both of them can have the better solution at different times. There have been times when I've had this grandiose idea for how to design a thing, and Adam is like, or we could put an if statement here, and just three lines later, the problem solved. That's obviously the right idea, right? Three lines to solve the problem, great. On the other hand, Adam will sometimes be like, I'm just going to use the libraries that I have, I'm going to use exactly the source that I have, the system that I have, and I'm just going to plow through it, and I'm like, Adam, if you just redesign this class to be like an interface, and then we can use polymorphism here, all of a sudden it'll be like so much easier for you to do and actually it's less code in the long run. So I think both sides can have their winning moment. So I think it's really important for folks to always examine both sides of the solution and then determine which one, who's the winner? But going back to my earlier question, like who is the winner of these two different solutions? The hacky solution or the ivory tower solution? And once you identify the winner and the two solutions, then you can pick which way is best. I started like when I graduated college, definitely a super ivory tower coder. And through my career, I've become more and more of a hacker. Definitely have mad respect for my co-founder, Adam. And then, not at Tonic, our customers, gotta look at your customers. They influence me every day. They're, they're in some ways the biggest influencer of how I think about the space that we're in and how we should approach our product and the technology. Okay, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? You got to listen to your customers and you need to be humble when you're listening to your customers and make sure that you're really listening. Keep asking the questions of every time you talk to your customer, get rid of every single possible bit of ambiguity when you're talking with them about the solution that you're building and the problem that they need solving. The English language is so damn slippery and code is really not. Between that conversation with a customer and the product that you need to, to ship, there's like a massive gulf of communication. The only way to get to the bottom of it is to continually ask why and get to the, the very, very bottom of what it is that the customer needs. I don't know how many times I've seen a project started on a wrong assumption about what a customer needed or what a customer meant when they said X or Y or Z. So I, I think that would be something that I've learned the hard way and I would not want other people to have to learn again. I don't know, how many times have I been given that advice and was like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> and then you make the mistake anyway because it's just like impossible until you live it. One thing that we experienced at Tonic was there was a time, there was the actual time where you had like all the investors on a call and there weren't many because it was just like seed but there was the question of do we try to make this thing happen or do we pivot because it's not we're not selling and this is just before ebay thing or well before ebay before the conversations with ebay it was like a year and a half in maybe or something or a year in and we weren't we weren't making it work i'd live this problem we'd solved this problem before i know everyone has a staging instance lots of people have a staging instance and they all need data for that staging instance and it was yeah, we just stuck to our guns, despite the fact that it seemed like it wasn't working. And then a few glimmers of hope, like, like a few glimmers of light appeared, and then eBay happened. 
and then we were off to the races. Super cool. I think that's that's all brilliant advice. Well, Andrew, thank you for being on the show today, and thank you for telling the creation story of Tonic. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big-